for so many years, you know, like especially after, uh, you know, 9-11 and so on, I would try to to explain to students how uh, the greatest anti-terrorism policy is to have true economic development, full employment, for people to have a job, a home, and the stake in society. But people with nothing to lose who feel like they have no value in society are more vulnerable to kind of extreme ideologies or is this the basic common sense? Welcome to Activist NMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is the final part of my five-part conversation with one of MMT's original developers, Matthew Forstatter. Matt concludes his many varied stories from the history of MMT, heterodox economics, and his long career. He starts by talking about how truly full employment can only be attained and maintained, both in good times and bad, by a federally funded job guarantee. In the same vein, Only a federally funded job guarantee can be flexible enough to respond effectively to both structural and technological changes, again, in both good times and bad. Matt also describes how the term flexibility has been distorted to give the appearance of an increase in options, when in reality it's a ratcheting down of worker rights. It also relates to how mainstream economics assumes for-profit businesses to be perfectly flexible and always trending towards full employment. In my interpretation, this is the excuse they use to assert that any government intervention is not just pointless and redundant, but decidedly detrimental. It also hides the fact that what gives private industry this flexibility is their ability to push all real and financial costs onto workers and secondarily onto customers and society in general. This is as evidenced by the very existence of involuntary unemployment and underemployment. Matt ends by describing an experience of how an unsubstantiated criticism he saw in the comment section of a New Economics Perspectives blog post worked its way into a journal article. 
Instead of the journal editors addressing the error directly, they offered Matt an opportunity to publish a response. Although he wrote it, he never sent it, feeling that it would be embarrassing to the original author despite their bringing it on themselves. He says the experience is representative of how the academic community selectively applies its standards depending on who in the moment it happens to benefit. Finally, a programming note. Due to an unfortunate technical glitch, today's episode ends very abruptly. And now, back to my conversation with Matt Forstatter. Now, people sometimes ask, why did I often emphasize the inter-industry or intersectoral linkages and the issues of structural and technological change? In addition to the issues of aggregate demand, you have these other factors that are important for understanding involuntary unemployment and the challenges of attaining and maintaining maintaining full employment once it is attained by whatever means. So back in the 70s and 80s, there were these debates within post-Keynesian or heterodox economics where you had sub-schools of heterodoxy focusing on aggregate proportionality and balance, uh, aggregate demand or effective demand uh, issues, and the analysis of money and the role that uh, money plays in creating uh, unemployment, also often linked to those discussions are issues of um, investor expectations of the future and the true fundamental uncertainty as opposed to so-called imperfect information in the mainstream. So that would be on one side, what they used to call the so-called American post-Keynesian, it, it doesn't mean that, like Austrian economics, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily from the U.S., but it's a, a description of a certain approach within post-Keynesian economics. So they focus on money, uncertainty, historical time, and effective demand issues, but not so much emphasis on uh, technological change or structural change or inter-industry 
proportionality and balance as opposed to aggregate proportionality and relations. So I have three, four, five of my initial articles related to what later came to be known as, as MMT, where I'm calling for an approach that includes all of this, right? Both demand and structure and technological uh, change, both money and the analysis of uh, monetary economy, as well as and economic structure and aggregate relations as well as inter-industry relations. And I was one of the few who was emphasizing that, yeah, we need to also talk about structural and technological change because structural and technological change, it's characteristic of a modern capitalist economy presents some of the biggest challenges to maintaining full employment once it is attained. And this is where the the job guarantee really comes in as an answer to the addressing of, of these challenges. I mean, there was a traditional Keynesian approach, uh, fiscal stimulus, but not direct job creation, right? So you increase government spending, you cut uh, taxes, you know, you lower interest rates, you increase the money supply, they used to call fine-tuning, right? And you bring the unemployment rate down as, you know, as far as you, you can. But then once you, you're there, this is what I started to realize that this is a time period where there's lots of... The word flexibility had become like a, like a buzzword. Flexible everything, you know, flexible flex time, work schedules. And the thing is that often in the, I don't know, business literature or press or, you know, this flexibility often meant like things that were not good for, for workers. You want to, you know, lower their wages or start making uh, workers uh, subcontractors instead of employees with benefits, uh, you know, all these other flex time and all this. Well, okay, I took a step back for a minute and asked myself, well, what, according to... Uh, mainstream economics gives the economy 
this incredible flexibility because under the neoclassical like assumptions you have you know perfect flexibility and instantaneous adjustments in response to price changes and and when i dug a little deeper what i found out is the exact same assumptions that endowed a market system in the you know mainstream models endowed the economic system with perfect flexibility were the exact same assumptions that had given the system this inherent built-in automatic tendency to full employment under the usual assumptions. So completely, you know, unrealistic assumptions of perfect competition and perfectly flexible wages, prices, interest rates, and all these other assumptions, completely unrealistic. Then I asked myself, well, okay, what are real-life factors that give the system flexibility. What I realized is what Alan Greenspan knew full well. We could go right down the list, and we'd uh, eventually also get to uh, Karl Marx, that the real-life factors giving capitalist economies flexibility are unemployment and excess capacity generally. Because when resources are fully employed or even, you know, at very high levels of employment and capacity utilization, the system becomes much more rigid and much less flexible, right? Because let's just take the labor services as as an example. If everybody uh, has a job and the economy is uh, going into an expansion, then firms don't have a pool of available labor ready to work as the demand for labor increases as the economy is entering this upturn. I I mean, if there is a reserve army of uh, unemployed, a reserve army of labor, then when the economy, you know, enters into the uh, expansion you know, part of the business cycle, then you have uh, labor at the ready. But if there's full employment, that is not the case. This is why it's also thought to lead to inflation 
because uh, when everyone has a, a job and demand for labor goes up, then you're going to have to, you know, offer them a little bit of a higher uh, wage in order to entice them away from their current employment. And there's, there's also an element of yeah. uh, there's also an element of the assumption that job guarantee jobs are going to be profitable jobs. And if that if that were the case, then we wouldn't be ecologically sustainable. But uh-huh. job guarantee jobs are intended to be, you know, complementary to the private sector and they can be environmental. They can one of the most interesting things was how a job guarantee can choose to employ extra people to do something even though private industry has a more efficient way of doing it. If it's beneficial to the people and to society, there's no reason for a job guarantee to not hire that extra labor even if it can be done like more efficiently or not waste. I don't mean wasteful, but I mean with, but I mean with, you know, like there's a piece of equipment or something that could do the job of a hundred people. There's no reason why not to hire those hundred people. Absolutely. And, uh, EF Schumacher, who was a very interesting economist who, in the 1950s and 70s, early 70s, started uh, emphasizing environmental sustainability, but also quite a number of, of other alternative ideas collected in this most famous uh, book called Small is Beautiful. So his most yeah. kind of uh, enduring contribution in terms of kind of uh, mainstream economics is his uh, concept of appropriate technology. So the idea is that a cookie-cutter approach to economic development or economic policy uh, has potentially devastating implications. If this is the way that it was successful in, uh, in, you know, the United States, then we should use that exact same technology or approach in West Africa or in, you know. Instead, Schumacher said that technology should be ecologically appropriate but also economically appropriate, culturally appropriate. You know, one example is when the Europeans first made it um, down the west coast of Africa and they became familiar with some of the West African economic society and practices, they looked down on Africans for not using the plow 
and for making use of the simple hoe in agriculture. And later on, it was realized that the topsoil in West Africa is quite thin and delicate compared to Europe and that the plow really had destructive effects on the soil in Africa and that the hoe actually was quite appropriate for the specific ecological conditions of West Africa. And, you know, there's many, many examples like the World Bank, you know, said, uh, oh, well, be much more efficient if, you know, this country switched from rice to bread as their main staple starch or whatever. You cannot take a culture that has traditions that go back thousands of years and just say, you know, because the labor productivity in wheat production is some minuscule difference above uh, the labor productivity in in rice production or whatever. I I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, The sort of arrogance and but capital intensive right as opposed to labor intensive uh production processes they uh absolutely are not um, universally superior uh and if you have an economy with large numbers of uh, unemployed, then using more capital-intensive methods really does not make sense. You can use a more labor-intensive method because you'll still get the production, but you will also create employment, income, Spending, sales, and your social cohesion. You know, doing something. This absolutely, absolutely. I mean, for so many years, you know, like especially after uh, you know nine eleven and so on, I would try to to explain to students how uh, the greatest anti-terrorism policy is to have true economic development, full employment for people to have a job, a home, and a stake in society. But people with nothing to lose who feel like they have no value in society, 
are more vulnerable to kind of extreme ideologies or is this the basic common sense? What happened with George Floyd was unfortunate, but and the most unfortunate part of it is this is not this is not a standalone case. This is something that has been done repeatedly since we came to this country. And after 400 years, something that has to be done, something has to change within it. And at this point, it's like, it almost seems hopeless because a lot of people want to do good gestures and goodwill. And like, I support Black Lives Matter and all this, that, but how have you actively done it? How have you actively that you just putting up a hashtag is not doing the work and not it's not just George Floyd is there's countless others have died in the way George Floyd has died that doesn't get that media attention and what have people been doing locally and how they've been supporting the black the black community locally not just when it's um, trending on Twitter and not when it's something to be talked about on MSNBC this is you need to all that has to be addressed as well but to be honest I'm tired of seeing videos like George Floyd's at this point it's trauma porn hmm. and it, it gives a sense of hopelessness and that should be the last thing you want to do because when somebody is at the point of hopelessness where they feel they have nothing to lose that's when all hell's going to break loose so, in any case, yeah, I mean, um, the social and economic uh, cohesion, you know, piece that you you picked up on, um, that was, you know, I suppose another of my, you know, maybe many contributions, the cataloging, I guess, of the social and economic costs of unemployment and the benefits of job creation. So I would give a few uh, presentations and, you know, you could see if you, you know, had the stamina to go through my publications you know, early on, I have... I've read about 11 at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm you know, mention uh, some things that I'm proud of. Uh, I have always had several ongoing research programs and, you know, it's not all related to MMT. I mean, I continued to pursue my interests, which, you know, I see it all as related. And, of course, you know, I don't want to write anything that would be contradictory to 
my understanding of how money works and but I mean you could take out all of my MMT articles and books and there would still be quite a bit left and I like to think it's work of some value and you know quite a bit of it is related to the issues I was uh, mentioning like ecological sustainability and intersectionality other forms of of um, inequality other than you know economic inequality in terms of uh, how these different forms of domination might support or even sometimes contradict one another. It is extremely important because it's possible that um, a society could, you know, eliminate capitalism and still be racist. You make progress in one area, but there's still other uh, areas where things are unacceptable in terms of these relations of domination. And so it is very difficult to deal with multiple forms of of inequality, but that's the nature of the real world. It's it's messy, right? So when um, they started the New Economic Perspectives blog, I saw so much a nastiness in the comments, and I just did not have an interest in dealing with that kind of troll behavior. And, you know, people could say whatever they want. They don't have to back it up. I mean, there's a lot of sort of things that we would consider to be unethical if it occurred in kind of the context of, you know, academic journals. But these issues came up because we had uh, some people, friends, I mean, really quite hurtful when people who you've hosted uh, in your department like multiple times and then, you know, they... They, uh, you know, make a couple statements and it's incorrect, but it's just in, you know, an email that they're sending to thousands of people around the world on their email, you know, list or whatever. But a journal, you have certain... uh, rules. So I sent an email to the guy who was writing this, just 
where I explain, no, this isn't true that uh, we've never addressed ABC or that we've never, you know. And then it was ignored or they just, you know, modified their sentence so that strictly speaking didn't uh, say X, Y, Z. I mean, just really, really... So then when it appeared as in a journal, I mean, my head was exploding because now it somehow made it through an editorial process of some type. So I wrote to the editors and I explained to them how this really was out of hand and yet they did not, you know, change it and now it was appearing uh, in a journal. And so the editor said they would welcome uh, for me to write a, you know, reply or whatever and I have it, ended up not doing it because it would have been extremely embarrassing for the person, even though I <laughs> thought they kind of brought it on themselves and deserved to be embarrassed in that way. I just, you know, it doesn't give me great pleasure or satisfaction to see someone, you know, dragged over the coals or whatever, even if, you know, they kind of deserve it in a way. And you know what? I have better ways of spending my time and it's not like so many people are are reading these journal articles anyway and but I can't tell you how many times earlier in my career lie awake in the middle of the night because someone is behaving unethically in terms of um, academic honesty, you know, integrity. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's also this whole issue of failing to cite people when you should. I mean... Look at all these discussions of Green New Deal or climate change and, and MMT. I mean, would it kill anybody? It would make you feel less if you acknowledge that somebody who you work together with as part of a research team for, you know, 10, 15 years, 
I mean, it's all there in the, the publications and so on. There's, there's no, no question about it. But, you know, people who are new to, you know, modern money theory or whatever, I mean, they they don't know. Of course, you know, all my students know and all my, you know, friends don't know. But, and, you know, I'm not going to lose sleep over it anymore because it's just kind of sad in a way because it's usually rooted in people's own low self-esteem, which, you know, everybody makes their own contribution, right? But the funny thing is that there's not a ton of MMT in my courses, you know, I have a little bit, but, you know, like we're doing political economy doctoral course, we're doing uh, anarchist economics and Buddhist economics and black political mm. economy, feminist economics, and all these things are important, in my view, also for, you know, modern money theory, because... You want to make sure that just like you have to understand like what the purpose of any particular theory or uh, Pierre Srafa, you know, used to get criticized by some Marxists. His book uh, of less than 100 pages, Production of Commodities by Means of Commodities, that uh, book was sometimes criticized by Marxists, say, because uh, they would say that, you know, it's not a complete theory of capitalism. And the thing is that it wasn't intended to be a complete theory of capitalism. It was intended to address one particular problem in economics and then that could be incorporated into, you know, a wider framework of, of economics. I mean, there's a lot of important areas of economics and modern money theory is not directly about of course, you know, implications of modern money theory for some areas. And, you know, it's one of the, there are myths about modern money theory. Now there's this uh, paper I saw that came out in the journal History of Political Economy, which is, it used to be considered maybe still is, like uh, one of the top journals in the history of economic thought. So the paper is called, was not a, in quotation marks, chartalist. Okay. <laughs> now, I don't know if you know 
Knapp, K-N-A-P-P, George Friedrich Knapp, right? He Mm -hmm. wrote a book, The State Theory of Money. Keynes quoted it approvingly in the opening or early uh, pages of uh, and Randy Ray has like maybe a, a chapter on Nap in his 1998 book, Understanding Modern Money. So this uh, article, you know, it puts Charlism in quote marks saying that MMT doesn't have a correct understanding of chartalism. And so there's, and then later on, the author says that Knapp was not a chartalist in quote marks or a chartalist in quote marks. I mean, you know, you just wonder, do I really want to spend the time correcting, like, some of these, uh, I mean, it seems like the better ways of of spending time, like, either, um, you know, working in the policy arena or, right, I mean, I guess uh, a few years ago, somebody found a, you know, video of uh, Minsky. If I understand this right, so just like I was saying about in the 1980s when the deficits were bigger than uh, ever previously when Ronald Reagan was president, Democrats decided to, right? Right. Uh, So in that period, uh, maybe Minsky gave a talk at a small college and if I understand it correctly um, he kind of sounded uh, like he was violating Lerner's law and violating you know the rules of functional finance even so Randy wrote uh, I guess a working paper or something where he's saying well, you know, late in his life, Abba Lerner embraced, what do you call it, the market anti-inflation, basically, I mean, uh, Lerner always had had a bit of a split kind of micro-macro neoclassical Keynesian uh, view. I mean, Lerner had been neoclassical before he became Keynesian, but even after he accepted Keynes in the general theory, he still treated microeconomics as though you could separate it from the macro and 
you could you could kind of uh, use neoclassical micro and in any case the point that I want to make is that we take from you know the great thinkers of the past show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app. Today is the final part of my five-part conversation with one of MMT's original developers, Matthew Forstatter. Matt concludes his many varied stories from the history of MMT, heterodox economics, and his long career. He starts by talking about how truly full employment can only be attained and maintained, both in good times and bad, by a federally funded job guarantee. In the same vein, only a federally funded job guarantee can be flexible enough to respond effectively to both structural and technological changes, again, in both good times and bad. Matt also describes how the term flexibility 
has been distorted to give the appearance of an increase in options, when in reality it's a ratcheting down of worker rights. It also relates to how mainstream economics assumes for-profit businesses to be perfectly flexible and always trending towards full employment. In my interpretation, this is the excuse they use to assert that any government intervention is not just pointless and redundant, but decidedly detrimental. It also hides the fact that what gives private industry this flexibility is their ability to push all real and financial costs onto workers and secondarily onto customers and society in general. This is as evidenced by the very existence of involuntary unemployment and underemployment. Matt ends by describing an experience of how an unsubstantiated criticism he saw in the comment section of a New Economics Perspectives blog post worked its way into a journal article. Instead of the journal editors addressing the error directly, they offered Matt an opportunity to publish a response. Although he wrote it, he never sent it, feeling that it would be embarrassing to the original author despite their bringing it on themselves. He says the experience is representative of how the academic community selectively applies its standards, depending on who in the moment it happens to benefit. Finally, a programming note. Due to an unfortunate technical glitch, today's episode ends very abruptly. And now, back to my conversation with Matt Forstatter. <laughs>